mindful of this morning's weather. As we attend to the word, hear this from the prophet Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Lord, as we come to your word, may it go down deep into our hearts, find fertile ground and bear fruit for your glory and for the sake of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated and good morning. We have just returned from our annual clergy retreat with uh, bishops and other clergy from our diocese. Um, I don't know if you've ever hung out with a bunch of clergy. They're kind of weird. Uh, it's a unique experience to say the least. And I think at least 60% of the conversations uh, center on preaching. Are you preaching this Sunday? What are you preaching on this Sunday? And this particular Sunday, there's actually an option uh, to kind of highlight world mission. Um, the whole Epiphany season talks about our mission to the nations and to our neighbors. But there's a finer point you can put on it this week. Um, we've actually kind of opted instead to just kind of stick with the Sermon on the Mount. Because otherwise, this reading, it's not going to come around for like three or even six years in our lectionary. And we want to attend to it together. So we're at our clergy retreat. Uh, Talladega, Alabama, don't recommend that. But um, that's where we were. And folks would say, hey, what are you preaching on for World Mission Sunday? And I would say, oh, we're not doing that. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm preaching on love your enemies. What are you preaching on for World Mission Sunday? We're not doing that. We're preaching on love your enemies. And after about the third time, the epiphany light bulb went on. Can you think of a more appropriate text as we think about mission to our neighbors and the nations uh, than this word from Jesus, love your enemies. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Uh, love your enemies. And I must admit, I'm a little disoriented as I come to this passage and the sermon this morning. You see, usually what I enjoy in preaching is explaining Let's take this thing that is opaque, or maybe there's a cultural distance, and let's really figure out what's going on here. Let's dig into the details. Let's uh, peek behind the curtain. <laughs> but this is terribly clear. It doesn't require explanation, does it? And so my hope would be this morning, as we attend to this teaching from our Lord, um, that we would think about not just how do we explain it, but how do we apply it? How does it go down deep into us? And what's it mean for our lives? What's it mean tomorrow? What's it mean next week and next year? Um, and I want to just remind us of a verse. We'll come back to it again and again. Um, and again, this is a pretty well-known passage, right? Um, love your enemies. Um, Romans 5 tells us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And so uh, for me, our starting point as we approach this text is just this reminder of what God has done for us in and through Jesus. Um, how he has extended not the law, not what we deserve, but has given us everything we don't deserve and forgiven us for all that we have done wrong. Uh, before we deserved it in any way whatsoever. Why? 
because of overflowing love for us. And so let's give attention to this passage um, and see how we can help apply it. Um, the first, Matthew 5, 38 through 42, um, it's about retaliation or really non-retaliation. I would say it's how to go the extra mile, how to go the extra mile. And we're in this pattern again that we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I remember what Jesus is usually doing is saying, hey, here is the law that you're given. Um, you've heard it said this, but I say to you. And he's not contradicting the law. Uh, usually he's showing how it's either fulfilled in him or showing the intent behind it or the spirit behind it. Um, I think we often uh, hear the law. We had a reading from Leviticus. And we're like, man, that is so beautiful and so we don't even know how to start. Um, and Jesus wants to say, hey, let's think about the spirit behind this. Let's go a little bit further. Um, and by the way, you're right. You can't do this on your own. <laughs> you need my Holy Spirit inside you. Uh, being at work to transform and work through you. But this first part here is really about, uh, it's interesting. The law is given. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and then we have this list. What's Jesus doing here? Well, he takes a law that was meant originally to mitigate escalating conflict and revenge and violence. It was meant to be a seatbelt, really constraining our worst impulses so things didn't get out of hand. And he goes, let's talk a little bit further. How do we not just prevent evil, but how do we do good? And so he gives us this idea of going the extra mile to pray for and bless those who you view right now in the flesh as um, your enemy. And I would just say, let's remember that even our ability to think this way is part of being made in the image of God. God has created us with the capacity for love and reconciliation. Um, in fact, I came across a study this week. It was in, on a website called The Science of Us. And it was all about forgiveness. And it listed 17 unique things we know about forgiveness. And the most interesting thing that they listed was who, or rather what, does not forgive. Does not practice forgiveness and reconciliation at all. And it talks about behavioral scientists have observed uh, in the animal kingdom this pattern of conflict and then reconciliation and kind of moving past it. Um, they would say that those who have studied primates, chimpanzees, mountain gorillas, you'll see massive conflict and then they'll reconcile. You can see uh, hugs and a form of kissing and then they kind of go on with life. Uh, outside, you can see this with uh, goats and hyenas and pretty much most animal species have some way of making up when they fight except cats. <laughs> Apparently cats have no ability to reconcile um, when they fight, but we do because we're made in the image of God and we've received uh, forgiveness from the Lord Jesus even while uh, we were sinners, even while we were um, his enemies. I mean, think about what's going on here in this passage. Um, the Old Testament law is working to establish justice You've heard it said an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but Jesus is going to point to the ethics of the kingdom, something about grace and mercy, something beyond. He's going the extra mile. I mean, think about how justice and laws should work in theory. And I'm a little nervous. We had law school students at our first service. I think we have lawyers at this service. Uh, so I'm going to tread carefully um, as I talk about this. Uh, but think about what laws are for. Uh, they're to order a society. 
Um, they're to uh, make sure that things uh, work in a common sense manner, right? They're supposed to keep things ordered, be a seatbelt, again, on our worst impulses. And one of the staples of law is commensurable punishment. In other words, punishment should be equal to the crime. Um, we don't have cruel and excessive and unusual punishment in our country, right? And that's what an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, you've done this, you get this. You've done that, you get that. And it's, uh, the idea is not to escalate. Like you don't get to say, you took my eye, so I take your head. That's what we're tempted to do, right? <laughs> we're always tempted to um, continue escalating. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, some of you have heard me share this before, but I always think of it when I come to this passage. Um, when I grew up, there was a kid down the street. His name was Trey. And uh, we were both friends and enemies. We competed in everything that you can imagine. Uh, we were on different club soccer teams. And that created friction. That created competition. And by the time we got to high school, we got put on the same team. Um, and I remember one particular practice that got a little out of hand. Began with an elbow and then an elbow. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, <laughs> then a slide tackle that led to a push. But see, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's escalating. Then a fist that led to a fist, that led to a fight, that led to a skirmish. You get the idea, right? Years of conflict and competition. And, and I know you've never done this. This is just me. Um, years of conflict and competition boiled up and overflowed out. And we had a good old-fashioned fight. And our coach pulled us aside. And we were kind of curious what's going to happen now. And he said, all right, um, you two guys, um, you're going to run around the field. Okay, we kind of expected some kind of physical punishment. Um, and you're going to hold hands until you're friends again. <laughs> and we did. We, we started with just squeezing <laughs> really hard as we ran. And it was so ludicrous that by the end, um, we really had reconciled, and we had uh, renewed our both friendship, and uh, there's a beautiful capacity in that. Um, you laugh because you know what this is like in your own life, and sometimes you do need someone outside of the situation to come in and just go, hey, this has gotten out of hand. Um, let's figure out what's happened here, especially for something like that. Um, I won't tell you this, but... Um, <laughs> I think that happened, if I'm doing the math right, about two weeks after I came to faith. And so I was attempting to actually share the gospel with Trey, <laughs> which is not a good way to do it, with fists. And then about a week later, uh, our fathers playing in an indoor soccer game, they too got in a fight. <laughs> Took it to the parking lot, and Trey's dad ended up in the hospital with a back injury. Because when we fight, we win. <laughs> <laughs> um, I only say that to even just see how things can get totally out of hand. It can cascade and cascade. And the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was to prevent that. Let's keep this in check. Let's not let this get out of hand in escalating violence or uh, relational uh, ripple effect with conflict. And, and that's all well and good. That's common sense. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But look what Jesus says. Do not resist the one who is evil. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Again, go the extra mile. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's interesting. Um, he's not, the, the, the law told us don't retaliate. Jesus says go a step further. Go the extra mile. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says here, Jesus offers a new sort of justice, a creative, healing, restorative justice. The old justice found in the Bible was designed to prevent revenge running away with itself. I mean, better an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth than an escalating feud with each side going one worse than the other. But Jesus says better to have no vengeance at all. Rather, a creative way forward reflecting the astonishing patient love of God himself who's called his people to shine as light in the world so that folks will see that he is the one true God and his deepest nature is overflowing love. Bishop N.T. Wright points out, no other God encourages people to behave this way. It's unique and it's both beautiful from Jesus, but it's also a challenge, isn't it? Um, Because my story is playful. That's a little trivial. Sometimes things are worse. Sometimes things uh, are more harmful. Sometimes the offense has been greater. Came across a a story when I was preparing for the message, and a pastor wrote about a a man actually named Daniel, who was very strong and muscular, very natural. That makes total sense to me. Um, And he had actually gotten uh, swindled by his brother in business. They were going to go into business together, and his brother took his money, tricked him, took advantage of the relationship, exploited him, and left this man penniless. He essentially sworn, if I ever see my brother again, um, I'm going to lay hands on him. This man subsequently came to faith. He became a Christian. Um, And though he was uh, excited and elated by the new relationship with Jesus, He's like, man, I, can, I don't think this is ever going to go away. I'm never going to be able to forgive uh, this wrong that was done to me. And uh, they live in the same town. So one day, he said he's walking, there's you know crowded corner, and he sees his brother across the way. His brother doesn't see him, and they knew eventually they would meet. And so he says he starts, you know, <laughs> his face flushes, his fists clench, you know that fight-or-flight adrenaline that comes in? This man has wrecked him financially, personally. And he begins striding towards him. Um, and again, he's a big guy. He's meaning to, to do some real damage to this person who has done this great harm to him. And uh, the story goes, and it's, it's true, that he sees him across the way. He's striding towards him. And all of a sudden, the way his brother turned, well... Man, his eyes look like his father's eyes. And the expression he recognized, because like father, like son, he says his anger began to melt. Uh, Because his initial impulse was to strike him, but as he looked at him, he saw the image of his father. And he says, as I saw my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. And he wraps him in a bear hug in the middle of all these people, And just kept saying, when I saw the image of my father in his face, 
my enemy became my brother. Sometimes the offense is far deeper, far greater, and we have to actually find deeper resources to obey Jesus in that instance. And I was thinking about just that, that image because deep down, of course, his enemy is his brother. But in the life of the church, how often has an enemy of the church been a potential brother or sister in the Lord? I, mean, I was just doing a little thought experiment about the Apostle Paul. You read the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is the worst thing to ever happen to the church. He, he oversees the death of Stephen. He goes to the priest and says, hey, give me license to go get those Christians, to throw them in jail, to subject them to persecution and violence and worse. I don't know about you. Surely someone has a knife, right? That's how they did things there. You had the zealots, the sicari, just sneak up, boop, no more Paul. That's the way of the world. That's common sense. That would be eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You took Stephen, we take Paul. But instead, <laughs> what happens? There's time for the Lord to do his work. And Paul encounters the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, and he's transformed. And before you know it, he becomes a leader in the church. The one who had been their enemy now becomes their brother because of the work of the father. And thanks be to God for someone like Barnabas who had the forbearance to welcome Saul, their former enemy. I think pictures like this um, are beautiful. And they speak of the gospel and they speak a word of both comfort and challenge to go the extra mile as we're thinking about those who have wronged us. But Jesus, uh, <laughs> I've said before, in the Sermon on the Mount, he has fun getting in everybody's business. He doesn't even leave it there. He keeps going. And you're like, isn't that enough? Go the extra mile. Haven't you gone far enough? Look at what he says. Verse 43, you've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Stephen prayed for Paul as he was being martyred. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, where he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's the way of the world is what he's saying. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's saying that's normal. That's common sense. That's common grace. That's the way of the world. And he's calling them to something uh, deeper. And what's really interesting that Jesus kind of is, he's starting a needle here to say, um, not just you shall love your enemies, but like, do you have enemies? Does God have enemies? Or do you have future siblings in the Lord? He has this really interesting thing in here that the Lord causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And I just imagine if you came out of your uh, home and, you know, got into your car in your driveway or maybe at your apartment complex, um, you woke up this morning and rain had fallen, right? And, and we need rain. It's been raining a lot, but rain is good. And can you imagine if you came outside and you're like, oh, good, my yard got the rain. Ha! And my jerk neighbors did not. <laughs> what, if, what if rain was intermittent, only falling? No, that's not how it works, is it? No, God pours out generously uh, to everybody, whether they deserve it or not. 
because that's his character. And that's the kind of character that Jesus is calling us to here. We see his providential care for everyone. And then again, secondly, we can remember, if you want to talk about you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, think about the example of our Lord. At every turn, he lived this out fully as we read through the Gospel of Matthew. And then think about your own life. Again, Paul reminds us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, uh, Christ died for us. And I would just say, before we can ever get close to reckoning with this passage, if we have not rooted ourselves in the forgiveness God extends you and me and the great love he has for us, the security we have in that, the eternal inheritance we have in that, well, you're, you're never going to be able to go the extra mile. Or look at someone through this kind of a lens of faith that they could become your sibling and the Lord. But that's what Jesus is up to. He's calling together uh, the church, this supernatural, multicultural, multi-ethnic, intergenerational family. Even folks who have been historic enemies are welcomed as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, there's not a lot hard to understand in this passage. But if you're honest, right now you might be going, seriously? I mean, like, I know that's the Sunday school answer, but do you know what this person has done? Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know what they've done to my family? Do you know the carnage that has been uh, wreaked upon us? And I would just say a few things about that really quickly. Um, first, uh, sometimes you just need a really quick process of someone saying, hey, you need to hold hands and run around the field until you're friends again. And sometimes there's going to be a really long process of living this out. Um, and sometimes when the hurt has been very significant, one of the worst things we can do in the church is rush and press people into a form of cheap loving your enemy or cheap grace or cheap forgiveness. Sometimes it's going to take a process. Sometimes the first step is actually just saying, Lord, I don't want to carry this hate and bitterness inside because it will eat me alive. Would you begin to soften my heart? Would you begin to cleanse out and lance this wound so that in the future you can bring healing? And maybe there's just an openness. Um, there's a new book by uh, Tim Keller on forgiveness. I would commend it to you. Um, I've listened to a few podcasts about it. I've just started kind of reading it. Um, and he does a really good job saying that uh, forgiveness... Uh, loving your enemy, beginning to pray for those who have done you wrong, um, doesn't mean you pretend nothing happened. <laughs> it doesn't mean sometimes there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean sometimes there's not ongoing boundaries and realities to the relationship, if there even is a relationship. But it's a posture to realize if I hold on to this, it's going to wreck me. Um, it's going to ruin me. Um, and I actually, uh, it was interesting, as I was thinking about uh, kind of preaching on this today, um, I was thinking about so many of those just incredible stories 
where heroes of the faith have actually lived this out and followed it. Um, I mean, think about in the last century, for example, the exa- like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. His entire ethic and movement was rooted in these passages right here. Um, in our own little kind of ACNA world, Anglican Church in North America, um, we had a situation years ago uh, at Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston where a young man came in and slaughtered people to Bible study. And the lady who was leading the study, her husband's an ACNA priest. And at the hearing and the interview, he extended forgiveness in a way that was, uh, didn't minimize the damage that was done. Um, and it didn't actually say, hey, we're, we're good. <laughs> it basically said, I need to forgive you because I need to let go of this. And you need to actually, hopefully, I'm going to pray that you seek the Lord, but that's, that's between you and God. There's another story I came across. Um, some of you know Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel Den Hollander was a USA gymnast, um, and she was the first person to come forward and blow the whistle on Larry Nasser, uh, the doctor who committed atrocious things. Um, and she's a hero of the faith. She's become a mighty um, advocate for victims and helping even society and institutions and the church kind of reckon uh, with these things. And you can actually go look online. She gave a victim impact statement to Larry Nasser, and she talks about forgiveness. And she talks about that she's forgiven him and the Lord and that he needs to seek forgiveness from the Lord. But if he's going to seek forgiveness in the Lord, he has to actually be honest and reckon with what's happened. And, and I thought about bringing in any of those statements and reading paragraphs from it, and there's a place for that. That can be all well and good. But if you're like me, thinking about those huge, big picture things can get me off the hook. Because I can think about these huge things out there or this huge example of forgiveness out there and not reckon with (laughs) the coworker I don't like or the neighbor that's kind of a jerk (laughs) or any number of things Maybe that family member that you're at odds with. There, there are things in our lives that aren't in the headlines that I think we need to do business with. Uh, when I say love your enemies, what comes to mind? Who comes to mind? What would a first step look like as you think about that? The last verse here, verse 48, again, doesn't take a lot of explanation. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Like, Man, wish I didn't go to church today. <laughs> it's a tough word. Um, I'll say two things about it. Um, one is that I think this kind of perfection has to be tied to what Jesus has been talking about. It has to do with non-retaliation and love. Uh, it has to do with our affections and our intentions. Uh, a lot of commentators have looked at that line, be perfect, uh, as your heavenly father is perfect, and said, is this, you know, a scrupulous never doing anything wrong? Or is it positively being a person of love? Well, what happens a little bit later? Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. Over and over again, Jesus isn't calling us just to avoid doing things wrong. He's calling us to something better and more beautiful 
of being loving. That perfection that we see here is rooted in that love. And it's rooted in the fact that we've received love from Christ, who died and rose for you and for me. Scott McKnight, who we've mentioned before, he says that this perfection is, uh, it's being obedient in love, and it's in line with Jesus' answer uh, when asked what is the greatest commandment. Here's what he says. Enemy love um, is not a magic formula. It's not a trick. It's a posture toward every human being we meet. And we're challenged in this passage to discern who it is um, that we treat as enemies. Those we claim to love but don't. Those who never sit at table with us. Those we label and libel. And to convert enemies into neighbors by extending love to them. This is one of the first steps is that love is to treat others as we treat ourselves. Because we can be pretty gracious with ourselves. We can be forgiving at times with ourselves. He says it's a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for them in order to foster Christ-likeness. It's a tough word. It's got to be rooted in the gospel. It's got to be rooted in what God has done for you um, and for me. Because before we are challenged, we're comforted by Christ's love. If you want to apply this first, start there. Have you received that great love of God? Are you rooted in it? Are you secure in it? Because if you're secure in that, then you can actually deal with the minor offenses that come and go. If you're secure in that, then even some of the most horrific things that can happen, you can remember, God loves me. He sees me. He's with me. And there's a process he's working in and through me. There's an ongoing work of God in and through you by the Holy Spirit. I think the first step when you think about this again is specific names and faces, but it's prayer. It's, Lord, would you soften my heart? Again, I mentioned this book by Tim Keller on forgiveness. He says the first step of forgiveness is not forgiveness. <laughs> um, it's wanting to forgive, or at least being open to having our hearts softened to begin even my, what might be a long and painful process. It might even be an incomplete process in this life of that forgiveness. Um, that's there for us. And so as I was thinking about this entire section, um, I was just reminded of a prayer in our prayer book. I'd like to share it with you as we finish this morning. Um, and it might be something you can take with you. Again, if someone has come to mind, maybe this is a prayer to begin praying through the week. Oftentimes, we, uh, in our prayer book, we'll actually use the Ten Commandments liturgically. We do this sometimes during Lent. We'll recite a commandment, then we have a response from the people. Recite a commandment, have a response from the people. Um, and here's what that response is. Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. As I look at this call, this challenging, hard, I don't know how we do it in our own strength, call from the Lord, that's my response. Lord, have mercy upon me. Incline my heart to keep this law. And that inclination is because the power and person and work of the Holy Spirit is active. I can't do this on my own. Lord, you have to incline my heart to keep this law. And then with gratitude, we can give thanks to the Lord for how he has loved and accepted and forgiven and reconciled us to himself. And then think about what's the next step? 
with the people around me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.